0: Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Jonathan Mileng. Jonathan is a graduate student at Columbia in New York. He's already had several working experiences in green finance, digital, and sustainability. He is also a board member for PUSH in Sweden. PUSH is a platform made to gather all Swedish youth organizations and young individuals who want to actively work for a long-term sustainable society. Today, we will speak about youth, engagement, happiness, but also about artificial intelligence, free will and politics. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much for doing this uh, interview during the coronavirus. Uh, How are you?
1: I was sick for a bit and I had to be isolated for about a week and a half, two weeks. I really felt how hard it must have been for people who were isolated for longer periods of time.
0: And do you think what's happening now with the virus is changing anything in the way you look at the world and the changes that need to be made or not really? For
1: me personally, no. It hasn't changed too much. I think one thing maybe that I could point to is the the value of social gathering places places where you're able to meet people who you don't necessarily meet in your regular kind of day-to-day routine uh meeting people who are not your closest friends or family that is something that i think we will understand the value of much more greatly after this is done so kind of understand the value of public spaces in general uh, it's easy to say, oh, it's just a place for people to gather and drink or uh, kind of listen to music, simple ent- entertainment, but it's also a place where we're able to kind of interact with each other and between classes and races or whatever it might be. So I think that is something that I have realized the importance of more during this. Yeah.
0: So tell me what your interests are and what what do you want to have an impact on?
1: The main thing that kind of drove me, when I was younger was that I you in some ways you have to create the conditions for everyone in society to be able to do what they want to do or that the desire and the want to be happy so it's kind of this simple lockean philosophy of you know the pursuit of happiness has to be available to everyone and i think that is still what is driving me and that is also why i have been engaged in climate change policy it's not because maybe that i care about the planet or nature in a certain, to a certain extent but it is the fact that i care about uh, the possibility for humans to flourish and, and live valuable and fulfilled lives. And we are not able to do that on a planet that doesn't have the possibility to kind of support uh, our ecosystems and people and animals. So I think uh, that is kind of what drives me, is that uh, we have to be able to provide the possibilities for everyone to live fulfilled lives. And and that is still uh, what drives me. Yeah.
0: And when did you realize that sustainability would be a problem in and- because that's not is that something we learn at school here in Sweden from the earliest age or is it something that you've come to realize by yourself watching the news and
1: i early on as many realized the extent of the problem with climate change and saw the famous keeling curve and how it uh, or global temperature warming are very correlated with uh, co2 emissions increasing since the industrial Ages, and this is stuff that we learned in school. Maybe not in primary school in Sweden, but later I learned it in college uh, specifically. And I took a class on environmental science while I was at Berkeley uh, with a very good professor. I don't remember his name right now. He showed me, uh, or the the class, I think it was a digital imaging video that compared the Earth's ozone layer in the case that we would have not uh, implemented the Montreal Protocol in 1987. Uh, if you're familiar with the Montreal Protocol, it was the one where countries got together and formed some sort of legislation s- around surrounding CFCs, which are a part of a lot of refrigerating systems back then, and they were having a very deleterious effect on the ozone layer. So us as countries were able to form this pact where we weren't going to use CFCs anymore. And if we wouldn't have done that, basically the ozone layer would have been completely gone today. And that would have led to catastrophic consequences like skin cancer rising dramatically and those kind of things. And the fact that we were able to do that kind of led me into climate change policy. And if we were able to do that with CFCs, which is a part of refrigerators, we would maybe be able to do it with carbon dioxide as as well. Obviously, that is much more complicated because it's so closely connected to how our society is run with energy and so on. But I th- saw this possibility of international cooperation and also change through legislation and politics, which I think uh, is what we have to do today as well. And that's kind of what got me started.
0: Mm. So tell us what you've done on climate change and what were your uh, involvement in actions and...
1: So I didn't actually, wasn't very politically active when it came to climate change. When I was at Berkeley, I was more involved in things like uh, tuition fees going up and also Black Lives Matter, which were was taking place in 2014, 2015 when I was there at Berkeley. But later I started working more with climate change issues. I started working at a an NGO called Sustainable Innovation, whose purpose it is to kind of get clean tech innovations who are small but promising out on the market and help them scale up. And then I started working with uh, Sustainability Communications as a consultant, uh, helping companies communicate what were, they were doing, address sustainability issues. So really, my engagement with sustainability has been more from a professional standpoint and climate change, but now also from a more civil society perspective when it comes to my role as a board member in PUSH Sweden.
0: So tell us about PUSH Sweden. What's this organization?
1: PUSH started, like you said, kind of as a platform to get young people who cared about climate change, but didn't really know what to do to meet each other and learn about climate change together and other sustainability issues as well. After a while, we grew as an organization, we maybe became a little bit more professionalized, you could say. And now we are more of a political interest organization advocating uh, sustainability and climate issues on behalf of youth. So we are very active, we go to the uh UN climate conferences, every time they take place, we're also active on an EU level. We drove through the uh, European Investment Bank divesting from fossil fuels, for example. We have also been very active now when it comes to how the European Green Deal is supposed to be formed. And I guess in that sense, the COVID-19 crisis has provided some sort of opportunity that now the EU seems to have some kind of mandate to drive through this European Green Deal, which is... Uh, very good. We were also very active in a case where we sued the Swedish government for selling, trying to sell their coal plant of Vattenfall to a, a Czech company. So we sued them for not respecting the rights of future generations to have a flourishing life, basically. That uh, case did not go through, but in effect kind of raised the concern of this selling of Vattenfall's uh, coal plant. And it became a very... Big issues. So, I guess those are kind of the type of issues that we have worked with. Uh, we have been a little bit more activist before, and now I guess we're a little bit more closer to power. And our idea today is to be both radical but also relevant. So that we want to. Our main goal today is to get political change and legislation changed, not to be the loudest or most radical youth voice, I guess you could say.
0: Today, do you think that through this organization, you have a voice and you're heard and you have some influence within the political arena? Or do you still think that it's kind of an alibi and you're not heard as much as you would like to?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. There was recently a letter signed by a bunch of youth organizations, including Fridays for Future, where we have been invited to EU meetings and been allowed to kind of put forward our ideas and what we think they should be doing better where we took the stance that some of these invitations were a little bit symbolic and the fact is that They want to be able to claim that we have youth organizations here and they are represented. But in some sense, the youth participants that went to this meeting felt like they were there more as a some kind of totem symbol that the youth were active. But what they were allowed to do was basically just have meeting greets with politicians and be able to see how the inner EU legislation worked. But they weren't able to kind of put forward their ideas about what has to be done. And the funny thing here is that I think that when it comes to especially this issue of climate change and sustainability, youth today are in many ways more educated and more aware of what needs to be done than uh, older politicians. And that's nothing to say that they're not trying their best as well. But we have been taught about these issues since we were in school. And a lot of people who are a little bit older have not. So we do know these issues very well and we know what needs to be done. And that's why I think also our voice needs to be recognized.
0: When we prepared this podcast, you told me about your posture and the fact that uh, before you felt as an activist and now you're moving to something else, maybe more of a change maker. Can you explain what you mean?
1: Well, I would maybe call myself an activist when I was in college, but I think the we were talking about it out of the context of a lot of kids in college, especially in America, they graduate with very high loans and they have to start paying them back. And this leads to them having to compromise their values and maybe start working for a business that whose values they don't stand behind completely. And I think there's all these compromises that we as people have to make in our lives. And we can't be willing to get arrested for whatever cause it may be our whole entire life. Sometimes we will have to do that, of course, if founding principles or rights are being threatened. But You have to respect the fact that there are always different roles for different people to play in society at different stages in their lives. When you have a family to support or you have to start building your life, maybe you have to give yourself some time to work with those things as well. This idea of kind of keeping ideological purity throughout your life is always going to be hard. You have to be forgiving to yourself in that sometimes... You have to work with institutions, with companies, with people whose values you don't completely uh, agree with. It's not even a case of just being forgiving with yourself, but you need people who have formerly been activists to be in other rooms as well, where there are kind of more levers and tools to change things when it comes to legislation or even business decisions. But if you can keep those principles alive when you are in these rooms and not kind of uh, change too much, then I think your voice and your thoughts are still going to be valuable. But I do think that everyone has a different role to play at different times in their lives. And this is something that I've grappled with a lot. What can you do in order to still keep your principles and values alive? It is possible, uh, definitely. yeah.
0: Everybody is a little bit engaged on those topics yeah, from time to time, having this kind of question. Yeah, exactly. But to work from the inside, you need to believe that change is possible yeah Uh, definitely and and that there is a question of urgency also Mm -hmm. and uh, how radical you think do we have time to change things from the inside or as you said we need both and i think we need both probably in society people who are pushing people who are trying to use that dynamic to change things from the inside
1: I think the stance that you have to take is do you believe that the institutions that we have in place today are good enough or effective enough for us to be able to affect changes through them or not? And if you're saying that they're not, then you cannot take part of them anymore and try to change them from the inside within quotation marks. But if you do believe that these institutions are well set up enough for you to be able to effect change through them, then there is no reason for you not to believe that you could. And I think that the institutions that we have today are stable enough and effective enough for us to affect change through them. I actually think that youth today suffer from a belief that our institutions are not effective. And this is also turning a lot of them away from politics. They think that politics is just a bunch of power hungry people trying to get more power but it is cynical to think that everyone who is active within politics or within business is only trying to get more power. Obviously, there's some truth to that, but we as humans are complex and there's different sides to us. And But I do think there are limits. You have to make a choice if you start working. For example, I would much rather go work for an oil company today than I would go work for Facebook or Google. The reason this being is that Oil companies, most anyway, have actually taken the stance that we want to transition, we want to change. If that is true or not, I don't know. But they have taken the stance that we have to do something about this publicly. But as soon as we pressure them to take that stance, then they have to always keep accountable to that stance. When it comes to these tech companies like Google or Facebook, the things that they're doing, they are not actually admitting that they're doing something that is unjust or undemocratic or anything like that. And if you go into an institution like that, where they're actually not even admitting that there is something that needs to change, it is going to be very hard to change anything.
0: So let's move on to that. To your mind, what is the problem with the data and data?
1: Well, let's take these COVID-19 tracking apps, for example. What you have to look at when you look at data and who owns it is the owner of the data, is that owner accountable to you as a voter or a person or a customer or not? When it comes to Facebook and Google and these companies, they are not accountable to you in any other form than as a customer, right? So what their uh, idea is that, okay, as long as we are creating good products that are effective and people want to use we can use your data when it comes to governments for example if they own your data they are still accountable to you because you can vote them out of power when it comes to google and facebook and these companies you cannot vote them out of power you could obviously start u- stop using their products but the reality for us today is that many of these products are almost impossible for us to s- stop using because if you start working for a company who uses google products then you have to use google products so then you have to ask yourself the question, who do you want to have this power? Do you want a company to have this power? Do you want an institution to have this power? Do you want a country to have this power? There is no intentional harm being done here by Facebook or Google, at least from the beginning, but just the pressures of the context that they have operated in have forced them to kind of monetize data. That is a problem in in and of itself, Right
0: maybe to clarify what the problem ultimately could be yeah there is the problem of freedom
1: yeah we can just look at how the political discussion is being shaped today in society messages which are which enrage you or make you angry are much more shareable and spreadable and engageable than other messages Right. So if you uh, share some kind of text on Facebook that is nuanced and takes a bunch of different perspectives into account and tries to understand different people's viewpoints, no one, maybe some people are going to read that and say, okay, that was a really interesting point. But if you uh, instead share something where you're saying that uh, whatever it may be, you're saying that oil companies are the the devil, the, then you'll get a bunch of people who don't support, who think that oil companies are the devil, who share that because they are very engaged by this issue. And then you have uh, the other people on the other side, which really support oil companies and think that they should be able to do what they want to do. Uh, and they spread whatever message they have. Uh, so you have these two different camps that start, you know, uh, get more and more into their own bubble of thinking about oil companies, and then at some point they're not even able to talk to each other anymore. And I think one pro- a lot of people think, okay, youth are so engaged today, they're so conscious, but a lot of youth are getting their news from Instagram, mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, memes. These are not mediums or channels within which you can have meaningful discussions. You are, in some ways, being... Manipulated by the medium itself. Cause when you interact with the medium, you like certain pages, you like certain images, then the medium is going to keep serving you those kind of images and pages. So you're never able to kind of break out of whatever thinking you were in before. So that hinders personal development. It hinders curiosity. It hinders you being able to explore other viewpoints, other areas that you weren't interested in before. You get kind of locked into this kind of Vacuum, And I think that's a lot of what we're experiencing today, and also a reason for why we're not able to affect political change, because we can't build coalitions in the same way. We are not getting access to people who don't think as we do. I think there's a a big problem there. Yeah, definitely. Why do you think Facebook allows you to update your profile picture with, I support Bernie Sanders, or I am an environmentalist, or... I am um, a supporter of gun rights. Why can you put these filters on your profile picture? Obviously, because it creates more engagement. But what happens then? It simplifies you as a person because you're obviously more than a gun rights supporter. You're obviously more than an environmentalist, but you are signaling then to other people that this is all I am, and if you're not on my side, I'm not talking to you.
0: So how do you manage that personally? Are you off- social media?
1: No, I'm still on social media, but I am very uh, conscious of what my interaction with social media how it affects what I am served back on social media. Just a new medium that we have to learn to live with. Just like editorial journalism is a medium that you have to learn to live with, you have to understand what the interests are of the writer that writes a piece or what they think politically, and then you analyze what their message is based on that. And you have to do the same thing with editorial or social media channels, just that I guess the editor is yourself in some way, I don't know. Yeah.
0: And if we take the COVID example, some countries are authorizing apps so you can see who you've met and if they had the COVID. What do you think this could lead to?
1: Well, when it comes to collecting apps and services, if you're able to keep the data within a closed loop, where it's, for example, your data, maybe a physician, and I don't know, some kind of program that is supposed to analyze the results from your test, that's fine, right? The problem is when you start selling your personal data to third-party apps, or you make it accessible to third-party apps, as soon as you make it accessible to a third-party, there's no limit to how far that data can be shared to other parties. And then, you know, people say, okay, well, it doesn't really matter because I have nothing to hide. Well, who cares if other apps are have my data or access to my data? But this affects everything from what kind of ads you're going to get served, how your experience online is going to be, what information is going to reach you, what news is going to reach you. Especially for me, the most scary thing with this is how your emotional experience is getting interpreted, right? So when you look at an app like Spotify, for example, that it knows when you uh, listen to music and what kind of music you're listening to, probably what mood you're in. It's not very hard to figure out, right? If you're listening to a lot of breakup songs, you just went through a breakup and you're a little bit sad about that. If you're listening to a lot of happy songs, then they know that you're going through a time where you're feeling very upbeat and you're feeling energetic about life. I don't know how Spotify handles their data, but if that data is accessible for other actors, they can in fact uh, kind of, I guess magnify whatever feeling you're feeling at the time and get you to feel even more of that, uh, which makes it very hard for you as an individual to have agency and break out of that loop
0: or take advantage of that. Yeah, definitely. If you're definitely feeling not. depressed, they're going to try and sell you alcohol or. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I mean, this is like sim- advertising. We've always lived with advertising, but at some point it becomes too, um, effective and you're not, you lose agency over your own life. Yeah. You can have a debate about if free will exists or not. But the fact of the matter is that if I am supposed to be a political animal, I have to believe that there is free will and that there is free thought and that I can affect change based on whatever my principles are. If you're closed in this loop and you give up this agency, then you are making your life determinate in some way. Mm. Um,
0: That's the world we live in. How can you be optimistic and, you know, trusting that, This framework is good enough, and it can be changed and redirected in the right way.
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to data privacy, I mean, there's simple solutions to that, right? You have data privacy laws, and you can do it on a parliamentary level or a EU level, and you can have these laws, right? In that case, it's not at all inevitable that you have this kind of expansion of data that is owned by companies that then use that data to uh, create products. When it comes to climate change, I think that issue is more complex. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to being black in America, it's it's more similar to South Africa in the 1980s and early 90s than it is Europe. And still that way. So that there is so much anger is not that uh, surprising at all. What I am a little bit kind of disappointed in is that There's this rhetoric that there was also in 2014-15 of you having to kind of turn inwards to think about these issues, to think about your privilege, to think about your own racism. We all carry these things, right? We all carry prejudices and we're all formed by the societies that we grew up in. And I think there is some usefulness to that, right? You have to think about how are you a part of this. But I do think that at least for Black Lives Matter in 2014, and also Occupy to some extent, we went inwards a little bit too much. And we have to think about what is it that we can do in society that will actually change things materially. And here, uh, you have to talk about changing laws, you have to talk about voting in candidates who care about these issues and want to do something about them. So this is about being politically active, Kind of in the exterior world in some way.
0: If you're going to get engaged in politics and want to change things from the inside, you need, as you said, to trust the institution, trust they are good enough to be changed. But in the US, it works quite well in Sweden. You have a very high consciousness on climate. You are a pioneer in terms of uh, social rights and education. And would you be as optimistic being in America?
1: I'm not optimistic about America. Right now, I think the one good thing about America is that, in some ways, uh, I am half American. And I think that Americans have the gift of being naive. And I say that with respect, because I think being naive and believing that you can change things is a skill that us Swedes are not very good at. Just that fact or kind of belief that you can affect change is... is that's just... Uh, Important in itself.
0: Eighty um, percent of the job is yeah, I is guess. done if you think yeah, you can.
1: Exactly. When you do think like that, sometimes you do succeed and you do change society.
0: Uh, in Sweden, there is a real heritage. The group is going first. In the US, it's the individual first. And in terms of getting involved in politics, okay, in the US there is trust that you can change things. Uh, so that's a very important ingredient. But if you're in a mindset of doing that to become rich and famous and make money, it's not what's needed right now. All the subject that we've mentioned is about altruism. Mm -hmm. It's about going for an impact that will not necessarily benefit you in the short term. It's being able to commit for a greater cause that you might not get. No benefit out of it. I'm just globally worried about the individualistic culture that mm-hmm. we're in. Unless we at some point change and are able to sacrifice a little bit of our own comfort, we are not going to be able to make the change.
1: Definitely. You're right about that. I think, you know, the US is the epitome of what happens when you take the ideals of a meritocratic society and you scale them up to their uppermost limit. Because what happens then is that you respect uh, success or financial success or celebrity success or that kind of status more than you respect other values such as integrity, honesty, uh, being someone who takes care of your family or your community around you. So these are values that you have to, uh, that you have to raise above these other values. And I think you're right that there is a problem in America where as long as you become successful, you're in some way celebrated as a good person. It doesn't matter how you became successful or what you did to get there, but you have in some way deserved your spot in the limelight because you made it. But that is also something that a lot of people uh, misunderstand about America. There is a sense of responsibility and community, even very strong within traditionally republican voter societies midwest and the south that you take care of your family you take care of your community there are these values that are very uh, respectful i don't know how the republican party kind of lost these maybe when nixon came to power i think there is something there that the u.s can kind of gain back
0: in every one of us all those values are alive somehow They need to be leveraged. When we were were talking about the US, I was thinking about Hollywood and and the importance of the narrative. There is a need of telling stories that will engage people on the right future and being able to project what we want this to be. And unless we're able to picture something uh, inspiring, it's going to be hard to create an alternative American dream. I'm hopeful maybe the COVID phase, by forcing us to go back to the essential and take care of our close one and feel in our flesh the importance of health and education and good relationships, maybe that will help shift the focus a little bit.
1: Definitely that, I mean, a lot of people around me have been saying that and hope that and Kind of thinking that a slower life is valuable. And what I do think is that maybe in some cases there is an emphasis on fixing or becoming more in tune with yourself and your people around you. That in some ways will fix political problems or world problems. And I think that is something that you have to kind of guard against in some ways. Uh, like you can't meditate away uh, racial injustice. Uh, you can't garden your way out of climate change. You have to get politically active, and th- this is where that won't do. You have to kind of you have to use the institutions that we have today in order to affect change. You can't just change yourself and the people around you. I guess.
0: So what would what do you want to convey to the youth generation, and what do you want to tell the older generation?
1: <laughs> I don't think that. Dividing us on generations is really useful. So I'm going to say I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah, I've become kind of also generational in my view of these issues that our young generation seems to get it, older generations don't, but I think that it's not really going to be useful to divide us up in order to solve these issues, so there's no real use in even in doing it because it's not going to help. It's not going to be effective politically.
0: So I can go and get involved in push then?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, (laughs) there's an age limit in push. But I think anyone can do... I mean, obviously, in Sweden, we have a huge problem where older generations haven't been listened to enough. And we shut our pensioners away in these old folks' homes where life isn't very valuable at all. And that's also a generation that isn't being heard, right? So, I, I mean, I don't think it's about how old you are. It's more about... Do you care about the decision? It's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. I mean, if you're black, I mean, seeing that video of George Floyd is going to affect you much more than if you're not black. I mean, that's just how it is, right? But if you're a person who actually thinks that this is unjust and you think the police system in America isn't working, obviously, you have just as much right to be out in the streets as anyone else and talk about these issues as anyone else.
0: So any of us, if we were considering now getting into politics, what should be the first steps? especially when you're not feeling close to one party.
1: Yeah. We all suffer from that is that, you know, you don't identify with every single issue of one party and then maybe you have some issues in another party that you identify more closely with. If you find people who are as passionate about the issues that you're passionate about and you think that you can kind of present a unified voice on those issues... The fact of the matter is that politicians listen to interest groups. They really do. They read the editorial pages and newspapers. They are a part of our societal conversation on social media as well. They are affected by how things are talked about, what people think about things, and they do adapt their positions from what we as voters are talking about and what we care about. So just being a citizen is being involved in politics. If you're just kind of looking at memes or, or just watching Netflix all the time, you're not fulfilling your duty as a citizen. But if you are a conscious, well read citizen, then you are also, in some ways, not a politician maybe, but you are affecting politics.
0: And if you want to go further?
1: We're becoming, when you be, want to become politically active, whether it is in a movement or an NGO or a political organization, I think, having this ideological purity where you think that, oh, I love this organization or this movement, but this is something that I really don't like uh, and I can't do this. I can't go to this uh, movement's protest or organizing meeting because they're doing this thing that I really don't stand can't stand behind. Well, I think it's very important there to think, okay, well – There's a lot of things here that I do identify with and that I do agree with. And maybe if I'm part of this organization, I can affect change on that one issue where I am not um, kind of standing on the same uh, page. I think that's very important. Um, And that goes to also just building coalitions. I think today, Maybe it's social media's fault, I don't know, but we're very focused on finding the points where we are different from each other, where we don't have the same viewpoint or standpoint on an issue. We do not focus at all on seeing the issues where we're able to affect change and where we actually have a broad coalition. So when it comes to data privacy laws, for example, most of the political parties are behind that we need to do something about this, right? But for some reason, they can't do it because they don't agree on other issues. But then it's like, okay, we'll start with these issues that you agree with and do something about them. And then maybe you can talk about these other issues where you're much more divided after that. Because just working with each other in some ways leads to more working with each other and more talking to each other and more understanding each other. Um, so I think just get involved and and don't be so, um, um, I guess, picky
0: great um i often ask if you have a quote that you like that you want to share or a book that you've read recently that uh, inspired you
1: i'm gonna share the quote a quote by james baldwin let me see if i get this right now he not everything that you face can be changed but nothing can be changed that is not faced there's a bunch of things that we have to deal with and that they seem insurmountable or whatever but you can't change them without facing them. You have to kind of grapple with these questions. For me, that quote is also a, a lot about, you know, believing that things aren't inevitable. You can actually do something about them. And you can affect the, the path that society takes or capitalism or whatever it may be. Just believing that there is some sort of uh, agency is is what's, I think, most important. Yeah.
0: Great. And do you want to share a book? No, you don't have to.
1: <laughs> well, I'm reading um, right now Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Suboff. and that's also, I think, why I am so uh, you know fired up about these issues about privacy. Maybe uh, a month or two after I've read it, uh, I've I will find some book that uh, you know kind of nuances my position on it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I think that book is very important. I think she's going to be recognized as one of the greatest political economic thinkers of our time in in 30, 40 years, definitely. She has really delineated how these business models work and how they affect our societies and democracy as well.
0: I think uh, it was great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sonia. Thanks to Jonathan Mileng for this conversation. And thank you all for listening. If you have liked this episode, please tell me on Apple Podcast with five stars. That helps me a lot making the podcast more visible and share it around you.